0: What works and what doesn't. Understanding what works. What works for me.
1: Understanding your own business to know what works.
0: What works for you.
1: This is What Works. I have a distinctly suburban pet peeve. That pet peeve? No pooping signs. Now don't get me wrong, as a frequent pedestrian, I have absolutely no interest in stepping in errant dog poop. But there's something about those signs that really rubs me the wrong way. Actually, there are a few things. First, who are they aimed at? People who don't clean up after their dogs are probably not people who attribute much authority to yard signs. And this might be news but dogs can't read. Second, most people do pick up after their dogs. So what harm does it do if the dog poops in your yard versus the next yard over? And finally, dogs don't understand private property rights. To a dog, a grassy spot is a grassy spot, but to a human, that little plot of land is theirs they rule it they decide who can enter and who cannot inside the boundary of their property they are sovereign to me those no pooping signs read as a more socially acceptable way to say stay out you dare trespass into my domain please know, i am not hating on you if you have a no pooping sign I get it. No one wants someone else's dog poop in their yard. And it's likely the only recourse you have at this point. Private ownership of land is one of those naturalized economic rights that seems to have always been true. But of course, it wasn't always true. And the idea of private property was invented. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores how to navigate the 21st century economy without losing your humanity. Today, we're exploring the economics of intellectual property. And to do that, we need to start with the creation of property rights in the first place, how things become mine and yours rather than ours. Then we'll dig into how intellectual property rights can inspire creative work and how they can hinder it. And I'll share a case study that shows how intellectual property is leveraged in the market, courtesy of author and podcaster, Jenny Blake. The origin of private property is a long and murky story and probably unsurprisingly, pretty problematic too. While it's tempting to ask when people started to relate to objects or land as theirs, anthropologist David Graeber points out that private property isn't a relation between a person and a thing. Instead, private property is a social relation. To say that something is my private property means that I can prevent you from using it. Graeber writes... Property is not really a relation between a person and a thing. It's an understanding or arrangement between people concerning things. To illustrate this social arrangement, Graeber gives this evocative and potentially grisly example. Quote, To say that the fact that I own a chainsaw gives me an absolute power to do anything I want with it is obviously absurd. Almost anything I might think of doing with a chainsaw outside my own home or land is likely to be illegal. And there are only a limited number of things I can really do with it inside. The only thing absolute about my rights to a chainsaw is my right to prevent anyone else from using it. The Western legal concept of private property is largely derived from ancient Roman law. In Roman law, the male head of a household had dominion over that household. Everything and every one in the household was his property. And in fact, Graeber points out, private property dealt first with people and then later was extended to things. In ancient Rome, the law assumed that all workers were someone else's property, meaning that most people living in the Roman Republic-turned-Empire were both people and things that were owned. Graeber writes, Much of the creative genius of Roman law was spent in working out the endless ramifications. Roman property law also informed the Western capitalist conception of individual freedom. Freedom, to Europeans, was the ability to do what they will with their own possessions. In this view, writes Graeber and his co-author David Wengrow, freedom was always defined, at least potentially, as something exercised to the cost of others. Continuing, True freedom meant autonomy in the radical sense, not just autonomy of the will, but being in no way dependent on other human beings except those under one's direct control. Now, a no-pooping sign is a way to exercise control over the land that I consider mine. But it's less about controlling the land itself and more about indicating that others are not allowed to use it. My dog can poop on my lawn, but your dog can't. It's a social arrangement that mediates my freedom within my own domain at the expense of your ability to act freely. That sounds dramatic, I know. I'm only drawing out the logical absurdity in order to make a point, not because I think your no-pooping sign in any way infringes on my individual freedom. Speaking of freedom and its relationship to private property, the Roman and then European conception of private property was not the only philosophy in use at the time. In pre-colonial America, the Iroquois operated on an understanding of what Graeber and Wengro call baseline communism. Communism, in this case, doesn't mean a heavy-handed, illiberal form of economic development directed by a central government— Instead, Graeber and Wengro mean a certain presumption of sharing that people who aren't actual enemies can be expected to respond to one another's needs. Now, this is not to say that there was no conception of property, but that it wasn't rooted in the radical autonomy that Roman and later European ideas of private property were. In the very early colonial period, we see the confusion that these two ideas created when they finally came together. A book recounting a series of conversations between a Frenchman of some authority and a Wendat political thinker named Tandia was published in 1703. In it, The Frenchman explains that the Wendat think it unaccountable that one man should have more than another and that the rich should have more respect than the poor. As with many Native American critiques of European society at the time, Kandyronk and the Windot expressed skepticism about the superiority of European society when it was clear to them that European laws and customs were based on adversarial relationships and a lack of concern for their fellow community members. So the right or assumption of one's ability to use their property as they see fit and disallow anyone else to use it is one historical route feeding our understanding of intellectual property. Another is the Enclosure Movement. William the Conqueror established himself as the Norman King of England in 1066. He distributed the land of his new territory to 180 barons who became tenants. Those tenants were lords who oversaw large areas on behalf of the king. Under the feudal system, the land was the property of the king, controlled locally by the barons and available for use by commoners.
0: So you had a situation where you had landlords
1: and you had many peasants. That's Katharina Pistor, a professor at Columbia Law School and the author of Coding Capital, in a lecture for the Institute for New Economic Thinking. We called them the commoners because they
0: also used the land, the commonly owned land, according to use practices that they just grew into. There were no titles. All of a sudden, in the beginning of the 16th century, the landlords realized that if they didn't share the land with the commoners as they used to, they might actually make more money. And so they decided to build fences and to grow hedges and not to open the gates anymore when the commoners wanted to come and graze their cattle what did the commoners do well they broke the fences and they broke the hedges and they went onto the property and plowed over the crops that had been planted in the end this physical battle that also of course was violent to some extent the physical battle however ended up in the courts enclosure became a formal
1: system of property rights By act of parliament, land could be enclosed to maximize its productivity and rents. At the same time, these enclosure acts ended the common right to the land that had been used by non-landowning
0: people. It fundamentally altered property rights to land in England in the 16th century through a gradual process of case law. There was no property right well defined before. It was defined through these battles.
1: So... In the same way a neighborhood with lots of no pooping signs reduces the amount of land available for a dog to do its business, enclosure reduced the amount of land available to most people for farming. And this hastened the shift to wage labor and industrialization, as well as the rise of capitalism.
0: Property rights just don't exist in a certain form. They are being created, they're socially contested, economically and politically contested.
1: Now, there are plenty of other historical influences on our understanding of private property today, not to mention whole other cultures and legal systems that conceived of private property differently from how Europeans and Anglo-Americans did. But Roman law concerning the household and the enclosure movement in England give us two salient ways to think about intellectual property. So let's pause now and take a second to define intellectual property. Intellectual property is the legal mechanism that turns creative or innovative work into things that can be owned.
0: People talk about copyrights, they're in the Constitution.
1: That's economist Dean Baker in a lecture on intellectual property for the Institute for New Economic Thinking.
0: They're in Article 1, Section 8 to promote the progress and science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries.
1: A song or a book is turned into a thing via copyright. An invention is turned into a thing via patent. A reputation and its representation are turned into things via trademark. Now, to stick with our metaphor here, intellectual property law gives you the right to put your no-pooping sign on an idea
0: it's to serve a public purpose. Okay, so what is that purpose? It gives a holder a monopoly for a period of time. In effect, what the government is saying is if someone infringes on a patent or copyright, they'll arrest them. Now, just to be clear, they don't literally go out and arrest them.
1: It's not just that this idea is yours, it's that you have the right to disallow others from using it to do their business.
0: So what's the difference between a piece of land or a cow or a car and an idea? Katharina Pastor again. Well, the first is that, you know, we, you and I, we can share an idea and nobody takes away something from the other. Intellectual property rights, as economists would say, are non-rivalrous. We could share all ideas, everybody can use them. It's not like I eat your apple pie and you can no longer eat it as well. We can share. You can be the owner of the land, you can still rent it to others, you can have temporal use rights. So we can be more sophisticated than this very primitive idea of this is mine, I exclude everybody else. But with intellectual property rights, with with arts and ideas, it's, I think, even, even clearer that, you know, we could share all human knowledge that we have accumulated over millennia, and perhaps everybody would be better off. The one thing that we could not do if we did this was to monetize the value of these ideas, of the know-how. Because if everybody shares it, nobody will pay for accessing it and using it in one way or another. That's the real problem. If we want to capitalize knowledge, ideas, um, even art, um, then we have to enclose it first, just as we enclose land with fences and hedges, but ultimately with legal title. We are enclosing intellectual property rights, patents, copyrights, trademarks, with the help of the law.
1: We can further tease this apart by considering our historical precedence of the right to property. First, remember that Roman law gives us the idea that property rights are social arrangements, so that I can stipulate how my property may not be used by others. Remember, too, that property rights were first understood as pertaining to people and then extended to things, such that the members of a household were people and things the head of a household owned under the law. Intellectual property is a category that governs social arrangements as they relate to ideas. Specifically, intellectual property laws dictate how you are not allowed to use my idea or how I can charge you a fee for the use of my idea. This makes my idea both an idea and a thing I own under the law, Without the political economy choices that create the category of intellectual property, ideas are just ideas, not things or assets or capital I can own. Second, consider how the enclosure movement turned the land of a given area available for common use into property that could be controlled by the crown and its representatives. Intellectual property turns ideas, once at least theoretically available to all, into property that is controlled by the IP owner. Economist John Quiggin explains, quote, more than any other kind of property, intellectual property rights such as patents are obviously creations of the states that define and enforce them. And that might lead you to wonder, Why do states get into the business of regulating property rights in the first place? Just as the idea of property is a social arrangement, property rights are political calculations. Owning something is a form of power, and the laws that govern property shape the way that power is accrued and distributed. In the case of Roman law and the dominion of the family and household, the state had skin in the game when it came to who they deemed citizens. By limiting full Roman citizenship to a small segment of the male population, the state limited those who could fully participate in public life. Modified citizenship was available to women, freed people, and some allies of Rome, but they were barred from voting or holding civic office. This legal and economic philosophy contributed to the homogeneity of Roman society, even as the population grew more and more diverse. In the case of English enclosure, the state was the crown, and the crown always had the motive to make decisions that kept power consolidated and under its control. Further, the state recognized that property rights incentivize landowners to maximize the productivity of their land. More efficient land use would theoretically benefit everyone by providing food and other resources at cheaper rates. This quest for productivity and efficiency would also lead to breakthroughs in agriculture. And in the case of intellectual property, the state recognizes that giving a person or corporate entity the exclusive rights to an idea incentivizes the creation of new ideas. Those ideas are Assets, intellectual capital that can be leveraged to produce wealth in a market economy. So, how is intellectual property leveraged to produce wealth in a market economy? Intellectual property rights give individuals and corporations a legal monopoly over their ideas. The thinking on this is that intellectual property is more costly to create than it is to reproduce. So IP law grants a temporary monopoly over an idea to its creator, who can then charge rates substantially higher than the marginal cost of those reproductions. For example, Disney owns the right to a legal monopoly over the Marvel Cinematic Universe. They outlay hundreds of millions of dollars in initial film production. Obviously, that's a substantial investment. But eventually, they can rent me a digital copy of one of those films for $5.99. The copy of the film is virtually free to produce, and I don't even own it since I'm renting it. The main cost associated with the product is the revenue share they provide to Apple when I rent it. So the $5.99 rental fee represents a significantly higher price than the cost of the rental copy would otherwise dictate. Another way we can think of the monopoly power of intellectual property is as a part of the system of rent-seeking. Now You know what rent is when we're talking about housing. It's the fee that a tenant pays for the exclusive use of someone else's property. While you may not own the property, you pay for the right to put out your no pooping sign. Well, intellectual property rights create the opportunity for rent, too. In his book, Rentier Capitalism Who Owns the Economy and Who Pays for It?, Brett Christophers describes how IP rents fall into two categories. The first category is akin to the Disney example I offered a minute ago. IP owners exercise their monopoly power by being the lone producers of whatever product derives from their IP. Without a competitive market, the rent is the excess profit the IP owner can accrue through their monopoly power. The second category of IP rents is more like renting an apartment. In this scenario, the IP owner offers the use of their IP in exchange for a licensing fee. Now, the first category of IP rents mimics Roman law regarding the household. The paterfamilias, or head of household, has exclusive rights over the members of their household. He is the lone beneficiary of the arrangement and the only person with the right to put out the no pooping sign. The second category of IP rents mimics the enclosure movement. In this case, the Crown owns the land outright, but allows tenant lords the use and control of an area of land. Those tenants can put out no pooping signs anywhere they'd like in that area. But those tenant lords also can sublet part of their land to commoners and peasants. That gives those commoners and peasants the right to put out their own no-pooping signs on their small tract of land in exchange for the rent they pay. All right, I think I've strung these metaphors and historical references
2: about as far as I can. Let's look at this in action with a case study. I run a tiny media company, helping people navigate what's next and also free more of their time to do their best work. That's Jenny Blake. She's the author of
1: Pivot and Free Time, as well as the host of the Pivot podcast and the Free Time podcast. Jenny has a savvy and efficient approach to using intellectual
2: property in her business. I have two main channels of IP, Pivot and Free Time. For each one, there's a book and a newsletter. Both platforms have a podcast and that's kind of how I get the word out because I'm not on social media over the years. I've been in business now for 12 years, self-employed, I've really been driving toward scalable revenue streams that are even semi-passive, partly because I go through ebbs and flows creatively, energetically. Sometimes I really need to retreat and it was creating a crisis every time I needed that time and space when I was the bottleneck. I love licensing because it's so scalable, and that's good for me because I'm not the bottleneck for getting those ideas out into the world and into organizations. And it's good for the organization because they don't have to wait for my time and availability and hire me to run around teaching, let's say pivot over and over and over. They're empowered to leverage that material internally, whether for worksheets, lunch and learns, at Google they have a G2G program, Googlers teaching Googlers.
1: Okay, so licensing is scalable and avoids bottlenecks in terms of the creator's time and energy. But what exactly does a licensing
2: product look like? I felt that for a long time, licensing was a black box. It's hard to understand how to price it. What the heck do you include? So everything that I'm sharing is what I have come to over the years and partly in collaboration with some of my clients. Shout out to our mutual friend, Pamela Slim. I know she's gonna be even creating more resources around licensing, because this is a big area of her interest, and I've learned a Mm -hmm. lot from her, people like Michael Mungay-Stanier, who created box of crayons. It is not easy to figure out. What my licensing package includes are the following. The organization gets access to slides. They get speaker notes and a facilitator guide of how to facilitate those slides. They get handouts for the participants. I call them the end participants, the ones who go through these courses. Sometimes in the case of Pivot, we have a Pivot workbook and the workbook can even be licensed as a standalone thing and rebranded as a self-guided career toolkit. Mm. So the workbook itself can either be an accompaniment to something or licensed as a standalone. And with Pivot, the, the other main resource is the book. So the fact that Mm -hmm. there is a book that exists around it is really helpful. Sometimes groups will run a pivot session and give a copy of the book to everybody. So there's a book, the workbook, the handouts, the facilitators have what they need. I also created a really robust, almost 200-page facilitator guide. So when I do a train-the-trainer session, there's also this really robust spiral bound guide that they get so that if they forget every single thing I taught them over a day and a half, in six months, when they go to lead their first session, they can turn to this guide of exactly what to do and what to say, almost more information than they would need. And then I also have a series of courses through LinkedIn Learning. And so those courses, even though it's not something I'm directly selling, basically LinkedIn Learning is itself a licensing or a membership model. Mm -hmm. And sometimes companies will then pair one of my LinkedIn Learning courses about pivoting for individuals or helping managers have career conversations with some of these other materials. To clarify here, the amount of stuff Jenny is describing here is
1: similar to the amount of stuff one might include in an online course. However, the value and impact that results on the other side of the transaction is magnitudes of scale larger than most people will ever see with an online course. When Jenny licenses the pivot method to a corporate client, thousands of end participants may now have access to her ideas. Multiple trainers within the organization will be teaching her ideas, and the organization benefits from all of that, both in human terms and financial terms. Now, in my experience, an online course feels like something that's still within your control. Licensing, on the other hand, feels like you're sending your little IP babies out into the world to see if they can fend for themselves.
2: There are three aspects of licensing, psychologically, that I had to kind of work through. So one of them is around perfectionism and delivery. Another one is around dilution of the brand, so I'll come back to that. And then the third piece is around clarifying your own business model. On the perfectionism side, let's say if you do workshops or keynote speaking or you're the one that wrote the book it can feel like well i'm the expert here this is my precious ip this is my method this is the way i teach it and i've honed and perfected my craft and almost an expectation that organizations will only want me to deliver this but over time that's difficult because you become the bottleneck so i remember in the beginning feeling really precious even of subcontracting having facilitators who could go facilitate pivot keynotes if i wasn't available or somebody's budget wasn't what i was charging it's really nice it's a big relief to myself be doing all the marketing and creating all this content i don't want people to just bounce right off of the business just because i jenny am unavailable but it could be so nerve-wracking to train even a small handful of people to deliver the material will they represent me and the brand well enough? Will they know how to teach the material? Will they know how to answer questions? And so I think anybody listening can pilot that process where you train two people who could step in if you were unavailable and it will create so much relief in the business. And yes, you do have to let go of the perfectionism around exactly, precisely how it is delivered. At the same time, what if they make it better? What if they infuse their own stories and ideas? And I've always found people who are already passionate about the work. So over time, the more you pilot, the more you release your grip a little bit, I find it's easier and easier to trust and actually see the benefit of other people enhancing and delivering the material. The other thing I think the psychological piece of letting go of perfectionism is not overcomplicating things and do not throw the kitchen sink into your licensing. Less is more. Mm. Make... The material, very simple, very straightforward. With Pivot, I mentioned they get a slide deck. There's one slide deck for how to help individuals map what's next and there's one slide deck for helping managers get better at having career conversations. The slides always stay the same, whether they make it a one hour session or they stretch it out to three hours. That's in the facilitator guide, how to change the duration. But that's it, two slide decks. And in fact, it's one slide deck that just has an extension piece for managers. So how do you make it as simple as possible?
1: Can you talk about what the actual relationship is between brand and IP? What do you mean by dilution? And how did you get through that psychological obstacle?
2: I think about brand in two ways. I've invested over six figures in branding, pivot, and free time. I've put a lot of money into this. I've hired really skilled teams, and I've put a lot of thought into it. I'm not a visual thinker at all, I think, and communicate in words. And yet having the visual voice of the brand, I think, helps set a a set of ip apart so what no matter how good your ideas are if the visual voice is not strong and compelling i do think it's harder to charge as much for it to charge a premium and having a strong visual voice makes all the materials cohesive everything i described the workbook the book the website the handouts everything is cohesive it's tied together it's polished it's professional and then the other part of brand is why me? So, when you write a book proposal, the publisher wants to know why now, why this book, why you? You know, why are you the expert? And so, part of the brand, and I see my job as the business owner is getting out there and in, in biz speak, they call it building a moat around your company. Why should a company license Pivot as a career development framework or career conversation framework rather than five other? options that they have, or 10 other options. What makes this stand out? And so the more brand equity that I create, primarily for me, it's through the newsletter, through the podcast, through the LinkedIn learning courses, through me putting myself out there over the last decade doing keynote speeches, it makes this set of IP stand out and have a little more credibility than somebody who hasn't done that work.
1: I think when people think business model, they think, how am I making money? And it's like, no, 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 that's only one small part of it. It's not just how you're making money. The much bigger part of it is what kind of company are you running?
2: The business model question is so important and it's easy to skip over. Who do you want to serve as your clients? Who do you want your customers to be? It can sound flashy and compelling. Well, if I open up certification and I just allow anybody to register, I can make so much money and I can trade so many people and the IP can reach far and wide. And yet, now you are going to have a 1,000 trainers and coaches who are your customers. They're paying you maybe a large sum of money to them for a one-time fee, or they're renewing with an annual membership to be part of that community. Now you've got to serve that community. They are all your customers. And by the way, sometimes they get cranky because they're competing with each other. Maybe they don't have enough work. Maybe they want more from you in terms of support and materials and marketing assets. It can get messy in a way that I personally do not have the energy for. Now, Back in the second episode of this series,
1: The Economics of Information, I took a look at what makes an information product valuable. Intellectual property often takes the form of an information product. Jenny's pivot method is a great example of this. You might also remember that I argued that it's care work embedded within or offered in addition to an information product that plays a critical role in determining the product's value. Everything that Jenny has described here is a beautiful example of what's possible when valuable care work is built into the structure of a product rather than added actively on top of it because Jenny took the time to think through how her IP would be delivered, who would be delivering it, how it might be delivered, etc., she was able to anticipate her customers' needs and the needs of the end participants to create a more valuable product. But seeing that care as built-in isn't exactly natural for most creators. Jenny told me that one of the big mistakes she made in the beginning was to do a bunch of bespoke work for her first licensing client.
2: Two mistakes I made when I was first getting started with licensing. One is that I built in a really bespoke manner with my clients. I wanted to make them happy. So I remember with one client setting up a weekly sync and brainstorming together and building out the materials together. And then ultimately they owned all of those materials internally so this work we had done yes it was the highest income that i had made from any one client to date in my business but it was so bespoke and time intensive and then it lived with them so i realized only after the first few mistakes of doing this that i was dreading my next licensing client because it was going to be so much work to co-create everything with them and have all these meetings and so i had a slow year of not bringing on a new client where i reinvested in the brand, in the slides, in the handouts, in the facilitator guide, and I made it so that everything would be off the shelf. That the next licensing client, they were going to get exactly what the next five after that were going to get, and if they wanted anything customized or white-labeled, it would be twice the cost. So that was really important, making it off the shelf. Everybody gets the same thing. And in the beginning, I thought maybe they wouldn't want that. Then I realized, that's good for them too. It means it's already built and road tested and refined and they get to implement it right away. The other mistake I made was almost being insecure with how much money I was charging, even though I think I'm on the very low end of low to mid, let's say of minimum $100,000 for an annual licensing contract. Um, I've never really gotten over $200,000. I know some colleagues who can get $500,000 for licensing. I've never been able to do it no matter what I put out there in various proposals. But in the beginning, I was so insecure even about a six-figure paycheck from one client one time that I threw in a lot of my time. So I would say, oh, this licensing comes with 20 consulting hours or 30 consulting hours. And over the year, years, I've scaled it down to five. Some people want to meet with our clients more than that, and they really want to be high touch, and they want to know what's going on and meet with them every month. I find sometimes my clients don't even want that. So now it comes with five hours. So basically, I, I really had to decouple my time from what they were paying. They're not paying for my time. And I don't need to be insecure and throw in all this extra consulting time. It's not necessary. And it's not the point. So I like as well, it's taking me time to take the spotlight off of you're getting me, Jenny. No, you're getting the IP. You're getting a subscription. And yes, I will be there to have a few checkpoints throughout the year.
1: Well, I have to say that I left that conversation with Jenny extremely inspired, and I hope it got you thinking too. What I really love about Jenny's philosophy when it comes to licensing and the type of business it allows her to run is her openness. Instead of sticking no pooping signs all over her IP yard, Jenny does what a neighbor of mine does. Put out some water, treats, and a roll of poop bags for any passers-by that need one. Instead of saying, stay off my lawn, Jenny invites people into her backyard for a barbecue. Most people get in for free and a very small number of guests buy all the food. But there are real problems when it comes to the intellectual property system too. Many economists agree that the benefits of a strong intellectual property system are outweighed by the costs, both material and immaterial. Intellectual property rights tend to flow to the most privileged rather than the most creative. The trademark and patent systems, the two more profitable branches of intellectual property, are difficult to navigate. To secure a trademark or patent, it requires a substantial upfront investment of time and money in legal representation. And that's beyond even the upfront costs of developing the IP to begin with. Because large corporations like Google and Amazon can invest time and money into intellectual property, they sit on an extraordinary number of patents that allow them to stake a claim on ideas they don't even have plans to bring to market. Patent trolls actively scour the market for companies infringing unknowingly on their IP and sue to force those companies into licensing agreements. Pharmaceutical companies use intellectual property rights to extract vast wealth from the healthcare market, including from the U.S. government, which is disallowed from bargaining with drug makers when it comes to Medicare and Medicaid plans. Though, changing that rule is actually getting support from both sides of the aisle because of how wasteful it's become. Intellectual property, especially with ideas relating to public goods, may even hinder innovation and prevent us from finding creative solutions to intractable problems. Finally, when it comes to cultural works that are protected by IP law, Big players have learned to leverage their IP rights to the detriment of culture makers. Musicians, artists, writers, we often have the choice between signing over our IP to gain wider distribution or maintain our own IP and see our work languish in obscurity. Like all aspects of capitalist realism, it's tempting to think that our current IP law is just the way it's done, that this is the best possible system, simply because it's the system that made it into our modern liberal capitalist democracy. But economists are pretty clear. We have other options. There are a number of proposals that could reshape our IP landscape, we can tear down the no pooping signs without turning the whole neighborhood into a doggy minefield. Suffice it to say, I have pretty mixed feelings about intellectual property. I find the arguments of the thinkers that I highlighted here today very convincing. I believe we need real change to the intellectual property system. And at the same time, I also know that I'm in an excellent position to leverage intellectual property in the same way that Jenny has. So at this point, I don't blame you if you have complicated feelings about IP, too. But hopefully, this little deep dive and case study has given you some things to think about when it comes to the economics of your ideas. huge thanks to Jenny Blake for sharing her case study with us for this week's episode. You can find out more about Jenny at itsfreetime.com and find the Free Time podcast wherever you listen to what works. Next week, we'll close out The Economics of by talking with Mara Glatzel about her new book, needy. We'll look at the economics of needs and how they impact our relationships. This episode, like every episode, will go out in essay form on Thursday at explorewhatworks.com and in my newsletter What Works Weekly. Sign up to get it delivered to you free of charge by going to explorewhatworks.com/weekly. What Works is a production of Yellow House Media, a boutique production agency for podcasters who are changing our assumptions about culture, leadership, and business. Today's episode was written and edited by me, Tara McMullen. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kildoff. Marty Seafelt is our audio engineer. Sean McMullen is our executive producer. What Works is recorded on the ancestral homeland of the Susquehannock people. and The Yellow House is located on the unceded land of the Kutunaha Nation.